Welcome to Least of These, where I cover the cases that need it most, because every life matters and everyone deserves justice. I'm your host, Leah D. Today, we'll be covering the disappearance and murder of Jill Berman. Let's get right to it. Jill Berman was a 19-year-old college freshman at Indiana University with a major in business. She was bright and beautiful with a beaming smile. She graduated with honors from Bloomington High School and was awarded multiple scholarships. She was active in sports and in her church youth group, an amazing young woman with a bright future ahead of her. It seemed there was nothing she couldn't do. Jill was an avid cyclist and in excellent physical shape. She enjoyed daily bike rides and owned a Cannondale R500 bicycle. It was her pride and joy. She rode this thing daily. On May 31st, 2000, Jill was at her parents' home in Bloomington, where she lived. She was on her computer, likely catching up on some schoolwork. But she decided to hop off of her computer around 9.30 a.m. and hop on her Cannondale for that daily bike ride. She needed to get her ride out of the way because she was scheduled to work that afternoon and then had plans to meet her father and grandfather for a late lunch. She jumps on her bike and, according to a witness, heads south away from her home. Her 12 o'clock shift comes and goes at the Student Recreational Sports Center at IU with no sign of Jill. And then that lunch date. Her father and grandfather are at the restaurant waiting, but once again, Jill doesn't show. This just isn't like her. She's so responsible. She wouldn't miss work, and she sure wouldn't miss a lunch with her family. Jill's family is extremely worried, so they head on up to the police department and file a missing persons report. The police and the community, along with Jill's family, begin searching immediately. Flyers are posted all over town. Law enforcement officials offer a $50,000 reward for information on Jill Berman's whereabouts. On June 2nd, 2000, just two days after she is reported missing, the bike is located. According to Unsolved Mysteries, a jogger spots the Cannondale R500 ditched in a cornfield near Ellettsville. Ellettsville is nearly 10 miles northwest of Jill's home in Bloomington, but the witness last seen her riding south. So many red flags are raised. She wouldn't have voluntarily just left her bike at a cornfield, and it wasn't anywhere near where she was last seen riding. She wouldn't have went on that far of a ride knowing she had to come into work, and this was not a route she would typically take. Investigators scour the area, but they find nothing. According to the Indy Star, on June 5, 2000, a digital radio is found neatly placed in a Bloomington Church parking lot. Around the same time the radio was located, a churchgoer had witnessed a suspicious dark-colored pickup truck driving quickly out of the parking lot. On June 6, the FBI joins in on the search. Thousands of tips are called into law enforcement. One tip is about a white male driving an old black Ford pickup truck in Ellettsville. An 18-year-old woman reports that two weeks after Jill vanished, she was walking past that old black Ford at about 10.30 p.m. when the driver of the truck grabbed her arm and forcefully attempted to pull her inside. Thankfully, she was able to break free and escape. To date, the driver of that black Ford pickup truck has never been identified or located for questioning. 
The description of the dark-colored pickup truck from both encounters matches, so officials take it seriously. However, they turn up nothing. Thousands of leads are followed up on. In April of 2001, the FBI and local police announced a new theory. The possibility that while Jill was on her bike ride that day, that a passing vehicle struck her and her body and bicycle were taken from the scene after the driver panicked. There seems to be no evidence that I can find to back up this story. And with nothing concrete coming in, the reward for information is doubled to $100,000. Surely a witness will come forward now. Except nobody does. Time ticks on with no major breaks in Jill's case. Almost an entire year goes by. On March 22, 2002, a woman named Wendy K. Owings confesses to an FBI agent that she had a role in the disappearance and subsequent murder of Jill Berman. She implicates not only herself, but two other people, Alicia Souders and Uriah Klaus. It turns out, according to Crime Shop, that these three had been named as suspects as early as June 2000, based on comments they had made separately to others regarding Jill. According to Owings, she, Souders, and Klaus were driving in a pickup truck. They rode south of Bloomington, and they accidentally struck Jill as she rode her bicycle. They then panicked. They drove to a remote section of Salt Creek where they wrapped Jill in thick plastic, secured with bungee cords, and each took turns stabbing her through the plastic before dumping Jill's body into the water. Polygraph examinations are given to all three, and according to reports, Owings passed her polygraph when she stated that she had knowledge of what had happened to Jill. The other two reportedly failed when they indicated that they had no knowledge. Wendy Owings later recanted her confession, but the police continued to investigate the trio. In April of 2002, the FBI publicly named Uriah J. Klaus a suspect. Klaus has always denied having any involvement or connection to Jill Berman's disappearance and has never been arrested or charged with anything related to her disappearance. However, he has served time for unrelated battery charges. It turns out police had already been searching Salt Creek as early as the spring of 2001 after a tip led them to that area. Now, they ramped that search up even more. Special Agent Gary Dunn makes a statement to the media saying, and I quote, we firmly believe Jill Berman is in Salt Creek. They so firmly believe Jill to be in Salt Creek that two dams were constructed, and a mile and a half stretch of the creek was pumped out, draining 15 million gallons of water to leave the creek bed clear for their search. Four days, searchers waded through mud, pumped out pools of water that kept seeping back through, scoured the banks, sifted through the mud looking for any trace of evidence. Resources from construction crews to train dogs and everything in between were called in. Unfortunately, hard rains came and the search had to be called off. When the creek beds started filling with water, making it hard to locate evidence and too dangerous to continue. According to the Hoosier Times, at several points during the search, investigators announced that potential evidence had been found in support of the claim that Jill had been taken to Salt Creek while still alive, killed at that location, and then dumped into the creek. The Hoosier Times also reports that police recovered plastic sheeting and bungee cords during their search of Salt Creek. In December of 2002, thousands of documents are turned over by police to the county prosecutor, detailing the investigation into Jill Berman's disappearance. It appears the police were confident in the confession and the evidence that had been found and wanted charges brought against Owings, Souders, and Klaus. However, Carl Salzman, the Monroe County prosecutor, declined to pursue the charges. It stays relatively quiet and there doesn't seem to be any movement on the case with the police or the prosecutor until... On March 9, 2003, bones are found in a very remote area of Morgan County, near Paragon, about 22 miles away from Salt Creek, 
when a hunter was walking through the woods with his son preparing for the upcoming turkey season. They were scouting the area looking for turkey tracks when they got more than they bargained for and stumbled upon a human skull and jawbone with teeth. The father immediately notified officials. The partial remains were found just about 100 feet off of Wargan Road. The Morgan County Death Investigation Team is called in, along with a team of anthropologists and a three to four acre area surrounding where the skull had been found was searched. According to reports, some personal effects were found, including an earring. Wadding and pellets, which are consistent with what would typically be found in a 12-gauge shotgun shell, is also found. In case you're not familiar, wadding is a piece of material that separates powder from the shot or the pellets. The pellets are the projectile that would fire from the gun and strike whatever you were aiming for. Multiple pellets were found indicating that it was either some type of birdshot or buckshot used. Anthropologists begin examining the bones to see what they can learn. Indiana State Police submit the dental records of missing persons to a forensic dentist who also examined the remains, and on March 13, 2003, officials confirmed that the bones found in Morgan County are those of Jill Berman. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. According to Jill's memorial wall, a celebration of life was held on May 31st, 2003 at her home church. She was laid to rest at First United Methodist Church Columbarium. Fast forward to December 16th, 2004, when U.S. Marshals track down Kerry Silvers in a Mexican village, arrest him, and bring him back to Indiana. Kelly Silvers had at one time shared a cell with Uriah Klaus. Silvers had actually been profiled twice on America's Most Wanted. And while he wasn't sought after for anything involved with Jill's disappearance, he was wanted for questioning, and Jill's case was referenced on the show. Silvers was serving a 61-year prison sentence for multiple violent crimes when he escaped not once, but twice, from two different Indiana jails, once in 2000 and again in 2002. There's actually an episode on Silvers on Discoveries I Almost Got Away With It, Season 1, Episode 12. It's titled, Got a Gun Made of Toilet Paper. Pretty interesting stuff. Silvers' record alone could be a whole nother episode. He's been a violent offender since he was in his teens. He has since been sentenced for those two escapes, and Silvers won't be getting out anytime soon, if ever. And looking at his prison jacket, he doesn't need to be. He was questioned by authorities in hopes that he had key information in Jill's death. And while I don't know exactly what statements he made, he sure doesn't seem like the type that would willingly talk to police. It seems nothing comes of it, and there is no movement on Jill's case until March 13th of 2006, when a Morgan County grand jury convenes at the urging of police. Six years have passed, and no one has been held accountable for Jill's brutal murder. According to WTHR, the grand jury was expected to begin its investigation in April, and they were estimating it could take until October for every piece of evidence collected to be examined. Over 90 witnesses were placed under oath, and investigators tell WTHR that two Bloomington men are still a part of their investigation, but they refuse to elaborate. But it doesn't take the grand jury that long, and on April 9, 2006, police arrest John Robert Myers II out of Monroe County. He was indicted on a murder charge. Police are pretty tight-lipped about what evidence they have pointing in Myers' direction, but they do ask for the public's assistance. 
They reveal that they're in search of an anonymous caller that saw a red car on the day that Jill disappeared in close proximity to where she went missing from. Police also report to WTHR that John Myers owns a red car, and that car is already in police custody. And they go on further to say that a witness came forward and pointed them in the direction of Myers, and they have been considering him a pretty strong suspect for about two years. Myers enters a plea of not guilty. In October of 2006, jury selection begins in the trial of John Robert Myers II, and the details begin to emerge. In opening statements on October 2, 2006, Prosecutor Steve Senega reveals that Jill Berman was killed by a shotgun blast to the back of her head at a very close range. He goes on to say that Myers frequently hunted with a 12-gauge shotgun and hunted in the area where Jill Berman's remains were found. The prosecutor tells the jurors that about a dozen witnesses will speak and connect Myers to Jill's disappearance and subsequent death. Some of these witnesses would be Myers' own family members. He had made statements to his aunt five days after Jill disappeared, before authorities even knew she had been murdered, that he was afraid he would be blamed for her killing because he lived in the area. Myers' home was just eight-tenths of a mile from where Jill's bike was found. Myers told his grandmother that he would go to prison for the rest of his life if authorities knew what he had done. In the coming days of the trial, it's pretty obvious that police didn't find a whole lot of concrete evidence linking Myers to the abduction and murder of Jill. But the circumstantial evidence continues to pile up. And while John Robert Myers II was a shock to the community since the early focus had been on the trio, it is not a new name to police investigators. In fact, just weeks into the investigation, which was being headed by the FBI at that point, local police officers who were very familiar with Myers had expressed their concern that he could be involved. And as all the details unfold, it's no wonder why. Myers has a violent record, especially when it comes to women. It's absolutely shocking. According to the Hosier Times, about a month before Jill Berman went missing, Myers' 18-year-old girlfriend had broken up with him, and the reasons? Jaw-dropping. She explains that the weekend prior to the breakup, Myers had stripped her naked, beat her, confined her inside his mobile home for 48 hours, dragged her through broken glass, and threatened to rape and kill her. Pictures were taken with her naked and humiliated, and all this while his four-year-old daughter was present in the home. He threatened to humiliate her even farther by showing her family and friends these photographs if she dared try to escape him. She was then driven at some point to the exact location of where Berman's remains were found. It is revealed that investigators believe Jill was also stripped naked and killed near that location. This girlfriend seeks a protective order after that weekend of horror in which Myers never faced charges. Devastating, because if he had, it is very likely he would have been in jail on May 31st, 2000, and Jill Berman may still be alive. We have got to take domestic violence more seriously in this country. In that petition for the protective agreement, it is revealed that Myers told her several times that he can do what he wants, and she and her family cannot do anything about it because his father is a sheriff's deputy. And the part about his father being a sheriff's deputy is true. It turns out that John R. Myers Sr. was in fact the former Monroe County Jail Commander and that his uncle was in fact a former Monroe County Sheriff. Interesting. The first petition was denied due to the girlfriend not showing up in court to testify. Her reason? She was afraid. I can only imagine. 
A few weeks after the breakup, the girl's parents' car, a 1996 Chevy Lumina, was vandalized, and they suspected Myers. First, paint thinner was poured from the hood all the way to the trunk, followed by blood-red paint. Was he trying to send a message or what? She also details how on multiple occasions, Myers would drive her to locations she was unfamiliar with and force her to remain there with him while they argued. He also threatened several times to take her out of state where no one could find her. She refiled the petition in June of 2000, and it was finally granted. Thank God. We also learned that in July of 2000, after Jill goes missing, but before Myers is officially linked to the case, an altercation erupts at Myers' parents' house. According to statements obtained by the Hoosier Times, Myers stopped by the residence to ask his family to babysit his daughter and was so outraged when they refused that he assaulted his father, who was five months away from losing his battle with cancer. When Myers' mother tried to calm him down, he told her to shut the fuck up before I punch you in the mouth. He then pushed her to the ground with such force it caused her to bleed. His father reached for the telephone and Myers jerked the phone out of the wall and pushed his dad on the ground, causing an injury to his right arm. And finally, he turned on his brothers, punching one of them on the right side of the face, swelling his eyes shut, and the other brother in the chest so hard that it bled. Myers fled before officers arrived. The family reported to the responding officer that he was hitting anyone that he could, and they felt as if he would harm or kill anyone that got in his way. And also that, during the all-out brawl, Myers had asked his brother where their father kept his gun and stated, if I'm going out, I'm going out for murder. Chilling. He then proceeds to his grandmother's house, where his child is sleeping. It's 4 a.m. He breaks a window and abducts her. An alert was put out because law enforcement officials were concerned for the child's well-being. They were eventually found about 10 miles away in Spencer, Indiana. And the person who turned Myers in said he had talked about leaving the country. An emergency protective order is issued by a circuit judge that Myers have no contact with his family members and also restricts his access to firearms. But oddly enough, 10 days after the incident and eight days after the order is issued, Myers was arrested at his parents' home on those battery and intimidation charges. At his parents' home. And in August, his parents petitioned the judge to have the no-contact order amended to allow for letters and telephone calls. Their reasons? His father's medical condition. His mother states, It is our prayer that throughout all of this, Johnny will get professional help that will cause him to be reestablished once again as a productive citizen. The judge grants the request. A week before Christmas in 2000, John Sr. loses his battle with cancer. Myers uses some of his time in jail writing letters to the judge. There are strange ramblings about his suddenly newfound religion. Save me from the sinful people who attack me. Their eyes watch for a chance to throw me to the ground. Wait, didn't you just attack your entire family because they wouldn't babysit? In another letter, a two-page rambling letter, he writes, Lord my God, suppose I have done something wrong. Suppose I am guilty. If I have done any of those things, let my enemy chase me and catch me. Let him walk all over me. Let him bury me in the dust. Um, okay. Myers makes a deal and pleads guilty on October 24, 2000 to one count of misdemeanor battery for attacking his family. He is sentenced to 60 days in jail and a year probation. On June 6, 2001, another woman comes forward seeking protection from John Robert Myers. 
She claims he forcibly entered her home, refused to leave, and pushed her to the floor. It's unclear if anything comes from this incident, but it doesn't appear that it does. October of 2001, Myers was charged with receiving stolen property, a 1999 Honda motorcycle. He is bailed out by his mother. On December 14, 2001, Myers gets busted stealing from his employer at Thompson Furniture. His boss had suspected he had been breaking into the business at night, stealing furniture from the store's warehouse. So the boss stops by Myers' residence and sees a dinette set that is missing from the warehouse, sitting in Myers' kitchen. He didn't have to go inside, folks. He spotted it from the window. He's back in jail, you know, the same one his father had actually been in charge of, and starts writing letters again asking for a four-hour pass on Christmas. He actually tried to use his father's death and his prominent position as leverage and a reason to be let out. It was denied. On April 9th, 2002, he pleads out to both cases and receives a suspended two-year jail sentence on both counts and is placed on probation for four years. On March 14, 2005, two guns are recovered from John Meyer's aunt and uncle's home that had been stolen in November of 2000. A Remington 308 rifle, a Winchester 12-gauge single-barrel pump shotgun, and a Mossberg 12-gauge single-barrel shotgun. The aunt and uncle had purchased these guns in the parking lot of the funeral home in December of 2000, where John Meyer Sr.'s funeral was being held. It's important to note that these guns had been reported stolen months after Berman disappeared, so it's not likely any of them were used in her murder. Myers was arrested on two counts of receiving stolen property in relation to the guns, but mommy comes in and saves the day, and he is quickly bailed out. In May of 2005, John Robert Myers sought out a protection order for himself. Seems like the shoe was on the other foot, and he reports that a woman hit him with her car and drove a good little ways down the road with him on the hood, then hit her brakes, throwing him off into the road. She then reportedly drove off. I mean, I ain't mad at her. A little taste of your own medicine there, John? Myers requests that the woman is ordered to stay away from him, pay his medical expenses, counseling, and compensate him for lost wages. A judge actually issued the protective order. In October of 2005, a call is placed to the sheriff's department by Myers' grandmother. She suspected Myers had been breaking into her house while she was at the nursing home visiting her sick husband. What a scumbag. And it gets worse. She was fearful of her own grandson, stating that not only did he steal from her, he had also harassed and intimidated her. She was so fearful that she refused to file a protective order to keep him away because she was afraid it would make him angry and he would hurt her. She had already changed the locks on her house after Myers bonded out of jail the last time. She took care of Myers' daughter while he was working and during his stints in jail, and she reported that his daughter was always reluctant to return home and that she seemed terrified of her own father. So we've well established Meyer's history with violence, especially pertaining to women. What else do investigators have on him? A witness spotted Myers near the intersection of Lost Man's Lane and North Maple Grove Road in his red Honda CRZ on the day that Jill Berman disappeared. This is the area that Cornfield is in where Jill's bike was found dumped. A source close to the case reported to the Hoosier Times that the witness also told investigators that there was a woman in the front passenger seat of the car. She looked a lot like Jill Berman. According to reports obtained by Pacific Daily News, a white van was also seen in the area on the day Berman disappeared. Myers had access to a white van through his work. Myers had actually called the FBI to report that while he was fishing, he had came across a bone and women's panties in a tree. He told his mom that they might be helpful in the Jill Berman case. A correctional officer 
from the Monroe County Jail reports Myers telling him that he had found letters and food trays that had information about Jill Berman's disappearance. He also made a list of places providing clues to Jill Berman's location. Not weird that this guy keeps bringing up her disappearance, right? The defense presents its case. John Robert Myers is innocent and he knows nothing about Jill's murder. Myers states that at the time of Jill's disappearance, he didn't exactly remember what he was doing, but he thought he might have been on vacation from his delivery job. But whatever he was doing, it definitely wasn't abducting and brutally murdering this beautiful and completely innocent woman. The defense presents some wild theories of what they think happened, but have absolutely no evidence to back it up. But the jury doesn't buy it. I mean, do you? In October of 2006, six years after Jill is murdered, it only takes the jury a whopping 50 minutes to find John Robert Myers II guilty of murder. And when it comes time for sentencing, the judge doesn't hold back. The judge hands down the maximum sentence allowed, 65 years in prison, and he has a message while delivering the sentence. The crimes committed by the defendant were particularly cruel and cold-hearted. The victim was forced to lay nude on the ground and suffered the mental horror of what was going to happen up until the moment he pulled the trigger. Myers is taken to jail, and that should be the end of the story. But it's not. Appeal after appeal has been filed and denied over the years. The main basis of the appeals is that Patrick Baker, Meyer's defense attorney, provided ineffective counsel and allegations that jurors were allowed to drink alcohol, have their cell phones, and watch TV, and that the jurors conducted themselves like a bunch of boys at a frat party. Sounds like a good time to me. But in 2011, the Indiana Supreme Court Disciplinary Commission ruled that Patrick Baker had violated the professional code of conduct and imposed a six-month suspension on his license to practice law. The commission ruled that Baker had solicited Myers with a promise of free representation and that he had misled jurors with wild theories of the crime with no evidence to support them. Baker actually apologized to the Myers family. I want to apologize to the Myers family, to you and Johnny. He said from the witness chair in a Morgan County courtroom, there are things I should not have done ethically. I have a hard time forgiving myself for some of that. On September 30th, 2019, U.S. District Court Judge James R. Sweeney of the Southern District of Indiana ruled in Myers' favor and in his ruling said that the legal counsel for Myers was ineffective and false statements were made to the jury during opening arguments that Baker admitted to. He ordered Myers' release from prison. He left it up to the state attorney whether they would try Myers a second time. This ruling came down on Jill's mother's birthday. He wasn't immediately released, though. The attorney general's office had 120 days to file an appeal, and they did just that on October 30th, 2019. On August 5th, 2020, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit reversed Sweeney's decision and denied Myers' appeal. They state that while the district court was right about the performance of Myers' counsel, the state's case was so strong, they don't feel an appeal is warranted. And what do they see as the strongest evidence? the many self-incriminating statements Myers made to other people. And in conclusion, the federal judge wrote, the weight of these statements when combined with other evidence leads us to conclude that his counsel's deficient performance did not prejudice him. The proper outcome is to respect the finality of Mr. Myers' conviction in the Indiana courts. And while it is possible for Myers to petition the U.S. Supreme Court to review the case, it's extremely rare that those requests are granted. I think it's likely that this is the end of it. John Robert Myers II will spend 65 years in prison for the brutal murder of Jill Berman. I think Jill Berman's family can finally breathe a sigh of relief 
Myers is where he belongs. He needs to be held accountable for what happened to Jill Berman. He robbed the world of a beautiful, smart, talented, and loving young woman. He has a propensity for preying on women, and our streets are safer with him behind bars. But enough about him. Jill Berman is still making a positive impact on the world. Her family carries on in her memory and honors her in so many ways. There's a Jill Berman Scholarship, which provides scholarship assistance to college students. The Jill Berman Emerging Leader Scholarship, which is awarded to students active in sports. Or Jill's House, which provides temporary home-like housing for patients undergoing outpatient therapy for various forms of cancer. There's an annual Jill Berman Color the Campus 5K Fun Run. The proceeds of the run benefit both Jill's House and Emerging Leader Scholarship Fund. What a beautiful tribute to an amazing young woman who had accomplished so much in just 19 short years. I'll post some more information on Jill's case and some of the wild twists and turns throughout the investigation on my Facebook page, at least of these. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode. Shout out to Joel Mara Perez at Sickly Tower Music for that amazing original theme song. I'll be bringing you an all new case next Thursday. And man, you don't want to miss this one. Until next time, be good to each other. ud af 10 personer har haft hovedpine i løbet af det sidste år. I Ibren lindrer lette til moderate smerter, også hovedpine i op til 8 timer med to tabletter. Ibren er et lægemiddel, der indeholder ibuprofen. Væsentlige bivirkninger af maveblødninger, mavesår, hudledelser og allergiske reaktioner. Læs mere om Ibren på indlægsedlen eller emballagen og kontakt din læge eller apoteket, hvis du er i tvivl om noget.